We will miss you, but we got two more weeks. And we're going to have a why not party because, let me explain the why not party, fam. We decided that even though the year's been rough, why not celebrate because God is good. That's why it's called a why not party. Awesome. Good evening, everybody. It is so great to share the word with you this evening. These are some photos of my sister and I when we were little. Aren't we great? That's where you go like, aww. <laughs> so, um, did anybody grow up with their cousins in their life? I grew up mainly with one cousin in particular that I was close to. When we um, moved up to Joburg from Peter Maritzburg, we lived at my aunt's place. And so she had one daughter and this cousin of mine, Kate. We grew up as sisters, basically. And Kate was a budding photographer. She actually now owns her own production company, and she basically thought that she owned her own production company when we were kids. And we were her set dresses, models, lighting crew, like you name it, we were it. And um, there were moments, though. I mean, these photos look great, but the behind the scenes of these photos was a lot of shouting on Kate's part and moaning on our part. Um, I remember one occasion in particular, Kate was doing a shoot on childhood and she wanted us to run through the fields. And it went like, run, 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 act natural, keep running, smile, no, don't do that, Chloe, run. And we were like, <laughs> and trying to smile and look great for her photo. That's why I didn't include that one in any of these. Um, but anyway, we all have like these moments with our family that are great, but then these moments that are like, huh. And Jesus had one of those moments with his cousin, John. Jesus and his cousin, John, were very similar in age. They went into the same line of work, um, and they, 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 shared, they shared clients sometimes with each other. There was a moment when John's people were like, yo, Jesus is taking all of our people. And John was like, that's my fam. It's okay. You know, I trust him. But there was this moment in Matthew 11 where John is in prison and he sends this message to Jesus. When John heard about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? Which is basically like, you keep saying that you're the son of God, but I'm actually not believing it anymore. And is it you? Are the things you've been saying about yourself true? Because if it is true, why am I in prison? The Messiah is supposed to come and set the captives free. Like pretty much every prophecy about the Messiah includes something about prisoners being freed. Here I am in prison and you're chilling. You're like you didn't even visit. And John is having this moment of trying to figure out if Jesus is who he says he is. And every single one of us have to figure out if we believe if Jesus is who he says he is, because if he is who he says he is, then it changes everything. But just like John, we've got to figure that out for ourselves. And Jesus doesn't send word back to John to say, here's the evidence of it. He says, you've seen, people get saved, miracles happen, everybody's lives are changing. Isn't that evidence enough, basically? And tonight, we're going to look at the same kind of response that Jesus gave John, which is the only, the book of Matthew is the only book that records that interaction, because we're going to be looking at how Matthew revealed who Jesus was and the conclusion that it leaves us to that question that John asked. Are you who you say you are, 
or should we be looking to something else to save us? And Matthew is a book that records Jesus' parables about the kingdom, Jesus' words, and a whole lot of Jesus' actions because Matthew was writing to the Jewish people to prove that Jesus is the promised one. That was his audience, and that was his aim. So the next three weeks of The Hub are walking us through this book, through Matthew, and how they reveal who Jesus is. The phrase kingdom of heaven is repeated over 30 times in the book of Matthew. And it's more than all the other gospels combined. And it is overwhelmingly the message that Matthew was sending. That if you look at what Jesus did, he is the king. And as king, he changes everything. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that your word is life-giving and active, that your word changes us, that your word is sharper than a double-edged sword, and it reveals the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, and that you have given us this word not just for us to repeat it back to you, but that we would know who you are, because knowing you is eternal life. And I pray, Jesus, that as we go into the first of the Gospels, that you would reveal who you are to each one of us. Lord, every single person in this room has a preconceived idea of who you are, and I pray that that's not what we would hold on to tonight, but that we would see what you reveal about yourself. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to bring your revelation, to bring your conviction, to bring your freedom tonight as we speak about your word. Amen. Great, so we're going to work through the book of Matthew over these three weeks, so I'm going to be using more than one passage from it, so it would be advisable that you follow in your own Bible. Matthew chapter 1, if you can open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. So like I said, Matthew is writing this book primarily to a Jewish audience. There's actually a historian, Eurodius, who said that he wrote it first in Aramaic and then expanded it and rewrote it in Greek, and that's the version that we have and that we use um, the Greek version, but it's because the the fact that he wrote it in Aramaic shows the audience that he was writing it to, right? The nation of Israel, the Jewish people. And the first line, Matthew 1 verse 1, says this, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's Matthew's introductory line as to who Jesus is, because if Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham, then he is the promised Messiah that the Jewish nation was waiting for. And Matthew goes on through this genealogy to prove that he is the son of David and the son of Abraham. Because there were promises made to David and Abraham about a Messiah, that through Abraham's descendants all of the world would be blessed. And that David would have a descendant whose throne would never fade, whose, God said, my presence will never be removed from him as I removed it from Saul. That he will be a ruler forever and his kingdom will be established. And so by Matthew just saying that one line, He's already saying to the Jewish nation, this guy is the guy. The one that was promised, this is him. In other words, he's saying, Jesus is relevant to you. And that's sort of, the the whole genealogy is meant to show you that, that Jesus is relevant to you. And whatever you read in the gospel, that is the question that you have to first determine in your heart. If you believe that Jesus is relevant to you, then the way you read it will be relevant to you. So as Matthew goes through this genealogy, he lists the 14 generations between Abraham and David, the 14 generations between David and the exile to Babylon, and 14 generations between Babylon and Jesus. But his genealogy is a little bit different from your 
run-of-the-mill genealogy, which I know for many of us, we don't really have a run-of-the-mill genealogy, but they did in biblical times. And if, if you read the genealogies in the, New, in the Old Testament, you'll see that it's very different to them because Matthew's genealogy includes women, which is very different from every other genealogy. Matthew speaks about several women in his genealogy, about Ruth, about Rahab, about Tamar. I mean, these women, some of the people in his genealogy are even foreigners. They weren't meant to be able to carry the seed of the promised one because they weren't part of Abraham's descendants. And yet, God used them to bring about the Messiah. And if there is anything that we get from the genealogy that Matthew puts out, it's this. Every person can be used by God to bring God's promises to fruition. And that there is no disqualification for any person because God does not look on the outside. He looks at the heart. And this genealogy that Matthew lists shows us how God is faithful to bring his promises. There are people in here that you won't recognize, like verse 13. Let's just, let's just take a look at verse 13. Zerubbabel, father of Abiud, Abiud, father of Eliakim. Anybody know those people? I mean, I had to practice that a couple times before today. I mean, those people, when they were in the middle of their lives, I doubt that they thought, hey, I am the one that Jesus is coming through. And yet God used them. And the, the encouragement to us that God is fulfilling his promises means that no matter what you see or don't see in your life, if you are faithful with God's word, he will use you in his genealogy for revival. And you will have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So that's how Matthew begins, right? He begins by qualifying that Jesus is the Messiah. And he goes on to list a whole lot of things that Jesus does. But the way that Matthew writes about Jesus has this like message that Jesus has authority. And he lists a whole bunch of stuff. He lists stuff like the way that Jesus speaks to people. He says that Jesus called people to follow him. He says the way that Jesus taught was with authority, not like the way that the teachers of the Lord taught, that Jesus has authority over nature to calm storms, to multiply food, to cast out demons, to heal diseases, that over and over again, Matthew uses phrases that speak about the authority of Jesus in a very different way to the other gospels because Matthew is showing that Jesus is the king that he has authority, that he wasn't just sent to do something, that he has all the authority. But I find it so interesting. When I was reading this this week and, and contemplating this, I was like, you know, if, if Jesus is the king, right, and he is showing these people that he has authority, I mean, yes, he proves it through his deeds, but all of his deeds are acts of kindness to people, right? His miracles are acts of kindness. And if I was going into a situation where people didn't know that I was the boss lady and I had to prove that I had the authority, I probably wouldn't do it through acts of kindness. I, I probably would do it through a little bit of intimidation and a lot of talking, because I talk a lot. <laughs> these people know, fan. these people know. But Jesus does everything through kindness. And at no point in improving his authority does he come with fear or intimidation. Why would he do it like that? I really, I mean, apart from the fact that he's good and he's kind and loving and that's his nature, I really believe that it's because he values the freedom of choice. 
And if he was to prove his authority in a way that instilled fear, we wouldn't feel like we had a choice in relationship with him. We wouldn't feel like we had a choice to follow him or not. But he so values relationship. And real relationship must include choice if it's going to be relationship and not slavery, right? So he so values relationship that he always prioritizes choice, even if it means that people are not going to recognize his authority that there were places that did not recognize his authority, but it didn't change how he did it. He wasn't insecure about proving that he was king. He knew that he was king, and so he did everything with an act of kindness instead of with fear, because he values your choice. And it makes me think that when I pray, you know, I know that God values my choice, but a lot of my prayers don't want him to value the choice of other people around me. That we, we pray these prayers that ask God to come and take control of a situation and act like other people don't have choice. But the way that God does stuff is always going to be with kindness. It's always going to be with freedom. It's always going to leave people with a choice. And so when we see God acting kindly, we must trust that that is still from a place of authority. That God's actions are going to show kindness. And it begs the question as to whether or not you trust him if it looks like kindness instead of control. <laughs> I love the hub, oh my word. <laughs> so Jesus, Matthew shows all these things that prove that Jesus has authority. So that he's like, you know what, this is the promised Messiah. You need to pay attention to him you need to let him into your life, right? But Jesus uses his authority to invite us into relationship. And he extends this invitation to relationship over and over again in every act that he does. To, I mean, to the point that the, his whole purpose of coming was an invitation to relationship, right? That he uses his position as the son of God to take the punishment for our sins that he could extend the ultimate invitation to relationship. But the way that he does things throughout the Gospel of Matthew shows that he is calling you into relationship and calling you to do things alongside him. And I want to look at a couple of examples of this. So turn to Matthew 14 in your Bible. Oh, I put that one up. I was nice with this one. Okay, so the context of Matthew 14. I told you that in Matthew 11, John was in prison. So Jesus' cousin John gets killed in prison, right? And Jesus goes onto the mountain to be alone after that happens. But a whole bunch of people follow him. And because Jesus is kind, he ministers to them. He loves on them. And then they got no food. And then he feeds like thousands of them. And then he starts sending them away. And he tells the disciples to go away as well so that he can still be alone to mourn the loss of his cousin. So that's where we pick up from verse 22. My Bible is NIV, and that's ESV, so I'm sorry if it's different. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come on the water. 
Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. What an incredible story this is, right? Jesus is, you know, in his space, mourning John, and he decides, I don't know, to take a shortcut and just go directly across the lake. And in that when the disciples, they're, they're caught in a storm on their boat and fearing for their lives. Not only are they afraid, but they see a white man walking on the water. And in that whitish man walking on the water. No, I'm just going to leave it. So they see this guy. He's in between skin sieve tone and my sieve, sieve skin tone and my tone, right? And they see this darkish, whitish man walking on the water. And because they don't know the color of his skin, they're terrified. And they say, he's white, it's a ghost. Oh no! No, I'm kidding. So they're all afraid on the water, and they see Jesus walking on the water, and Jesus says to them, no, it's me, don't worry about it. And in that moment, Peter says, if it's you, tell me to come to you. And Jesus uses his authority to get Peter to do the thing that he is doing, right? He extends that power and that authority to his disciples to say, sure, do what I'm doing. And so Peter gets an opportunity to walk on water. He's trying to get Peter to not look at the wind and the waves, but to look at him and to focus on him. And so many of us, right, Jesus is wanting to use his authority that we would walk in the same authority that he has. But we are like, Lord, I'm just trying to get my business and my family through the storm. Please, can you come and help me? But if Jesus is king and we were looking at what he was doing, then we would get an opportunity to walk on the water. But we get so focused on trying to get through the storm that we're just asking Jesus to follow us instead of following him. But Jesus wants to use his power and authority so that you would be able to do the things that he does, that you would live in power and authority. But we're so focused on the stuff that's happening and the waves and the wind and the storm. But the incredible thing about God is that his, the, the authority that he has is positioned so that you would live in authority. It's positioned so that you would think of yourself differently and walk through things differently, but it does require you looking at him instead of looking at your stuff all the time, right? And the way that Jesus demonstrates this relationship is so different because of that. Another example, Matthew 11. Let's turn to Matthew 11 where going back to that, that story of John the Baptist calling out to Jesus to say, are you the son of God? After that happens, Jesus speaks to the crowd about John, and he ends that whole talk with saying this, all things have been handed over to be my, my father, and no one knows the son except the father, and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Such a beautiful promise that Jesus gives us, that he says, come to me if you are burdened and weary, and I will give you rest. But what Jesus is doing there is not just making a promise about rest. He's actually redefining relationship and repentance. And again, it goes back to what happens before he says that. So I'm going to read from verse 20. You can follow in your Bibles. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. Jumping to verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That when Jesus begins that thing, and he's talking about the fact that, you know, John the Baptist was sent before him as um, the prophet to go before the Messiah. But the people were like, we do this, and then we did it, and then you complained. And then do this, and then we did it, and then you complained. That's what Jesus is saying about the people. He's saying you had no faith in what we did. Woe to you who had no faith, because the miracles happened that showed you that I was the Messiah, and you did not repent. Repentance is this, coming to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It is learning from me, because I am humble in heart. So Jesus uses this opportunity to redefine what repentance looks like because that is what relationship is. Repentance is relationship with God. It is staying in a place of learning from him. When our Christianity becomes burdensome, it's because we've stopped learning from Jesus. And he says there that the Father has revealed this not to the wise and understanding, but to those who are like children. And so many of us, when God does stuff in us, then we start going, okay, I understand how you did that, and the next time I'm facing something, I'm going to just use exactly what you did before and hope that you'll come through here. And what we're doing there is we're becoming the wise and understanding whose faith is actually in our own version of righteousness and control and not staying learning from Jesus and staying humble in heart. And so many of us end up building our faith around the way Jesus does stuff and not in Jesus himself because we start applying our understanding to it and not our faith in Jesus. Now, it's not to say that you shouldn't have understanding. Jesus is very, very interested in your mind, right? He loves your intelligence and your intellect. He gave it to you, and it's good to understand stuff. But when your faith is in what you understand, then that's where the problem comes in. But we... We do this in so many ways, and we don't realize that we're doing it, and it's called self-righteousness, where we start saying, you know what, this is, I need, I need to get healthy, I need my spiritual life to get healthy, I need my soul to get healthy, and this is how I do it. I know the steps that I need to take to get my soul healthy, and I'm just going to keep doing that because that seems to work. And your Christianity becomes burdensome because you're not staying learning from Him. Jesus calls 
learning from him, that position, not just a once-off thing, but being in that all the time, being poor in spirit. Matthew 5, verse 3, it's the, Jesus has just come from, he started his ministry, and he's just um, started his inaugural speech, if you will, his Sermon on the Mount, and he lists a whole bunch of blessings. In Deuteronomy, when Moses finished the law, he listed a whole bunch of blessings and curses that were based on the law. And if you live out the law, then these are the blessings that will follow. But Jesus begins with the blessings of the kingdom of heaven because they're very different when it's about your righteousness being found in Jesus and not in your own works. And this is what he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember that the book of Matthew is being written to a primarily Jewish audience. It is to show them that Jesus is the king. Now, to a Jewish people, you received and inherited the kingdom of heaven because you were Jewish, right? Because you were born in the right people group. And you, if you were a good Jewish person and you did all of the things that you needed to do, then you inherited the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus begins with saying that the poor in spirit will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And being poor is being poor. That, that's what that word means, to be poor, to not have, to be in need. In other words, Jesus is saying spiritual neediness will result in you receiving the kingdom of heaven. Being in a place where you understand that you don't have what it takes to save your soul. But not being in that place once, living from that place. And it is very hard for us to live from that place because we don't like to be needy. We like to feel secure. And so as soon as our neediness crops up, we find something that gives us security. And maybe that's Jesus. Maybe that's the word. Maybe that's community. Maybe that's prayer. And we start to build our security again so that we don't feel needy. And that is where self-righteousness starts to creep in because we start going back to the thing that gave us security instead of staying in the discomfort of spiritual neediness and learning from Jesus who is humble in heart. I actually want to read something to you from a commentary that I was reading this week. Dr. Alan Russ, people who are poor in spirit are those who are humble before God. They realize that they have nothing in this life that they can contribute to receiving the kingdom of heaven. They have afflicted their souls, meaning that they've humbled themselves and repented with a deep contrition, and they've come to the king as helpless and hopeless sinners. There is no arrogance in them, no self-righteousness, no self-sufficiency. They are free from their own pretensions, and therefore, they are free for God. The people that Matthew was writing to, the Jewish people, they had a set of traditions that proved their righteousness. And we're actually not that far off from that. We also have a set of traditions that we believe prove our righteousness. And in and of themselves, these things are all life-giving. But when we start going to these things over and over again to make sure that we feel secure, then that's where it becomes self-righteousness. And these traditions are, are things like going to church, praying, you know, the, you know, praying the Bible. Wow. Praying, reading the Bible, praying the Bible too. <laughs> Things like having a community and making sure that my community affirms that my faith is legitimate. Things like um, understanding my soul and my spirituality and fixing it myself. That is control and self-righteousness. It is not staying poor in spirit. It is a difficult place to be to remain poor in spirit so that you can 
receive the kingdom of heaven. But that is the kind of relationship that the king invites you to. And over and over again, the way that Matthew tells the stories and the miracles of Jesus, it invites you into a relationship where you are living in a place that it just cannot possibly be up to you. Because walking on water is not up to you. And so Jesus is calling you to live so far beyond a righteousness that you could attain for yourself that you feel poor in spirit all the time because the level of authority that you are operating feels far beyond your qualification. But that is what he has called you to. He has called you to believe that you can do so much more than what you ever dreamt, not because of you, but because of his generosity, because of his authority that he delegated to you that he says, if you remain poor in spirit, I will give you a kingdom. We are meant to live from that place. And tonight, as, as, we conclu- as I conclude, I want to invite you to re- repent from controlling your spirituality, from controlling your walk with God, from staying in a place where you understood everything about your faith, from being one who was wise and understanding and become one who is like a child whose faith is is not based on what they understand, but based on the daddy that they see before them, that they just say, sure, it's all about you. It's not about me. I don't need to understand. I just want to do what you do. So let's pray. Jesus, we repent of all of the boxes that we have put our faith in all of the ways that we have tried to understand you and that our understanding has limited what we expect and trust for because we want, because we we idolize the understanding, Lord God. We repent of that, Jesus. We repent, Lord, of preferring our control over our faith. We repent, Lord, of having a relationship that is easy but not dynamic. You know, Jesus did challenge us to live in real relationship. Sorry, I know you were praying, but then I remembered I wanted to say something, so we're going to come back to praying. That Jesus challenged us to live in real relationship, and real relationship changes. It's not the same. And if we keep going back to the same things that we understand, then no wonder we begin to struggle. No wonder we begin to say, are you who you say you are, Jesus? Because I'm not seeing it. Because we keep going back to the same thing instead of being vulnerable enough to let God change how we do things. To let God move. To let God be different. A real relationship is dynamic and it must be dynamic. Jesus came to live the life that we were meant to live. And that life was one with God, where, where, where he did crazy things and they were different each time, but he did them because God said them and not because he was proving something to anybody else around him. And that's the kind of life that God wants to call you into, that you do crazy things not because of anybody else around you, but because of the surety that you have that Jesus has given you authority, that you don't disqualify yourself from that place but Jesus also died the death that we were meant to die that the punishment for our sin is death and the separation that we have from God is no longer because Jesus tore every veil and broke every wall and brought us to a place where we can have new life in him 
But if we're going to walk in the authority that Jesus has, we need to first surrender all of the control that we have over our lives. So that's what we're going to do. So Lord, we look to you. We reject every thought of righteousness, Lord God, that we have from our own works and our own position, Lord Jesus. I thank you that no matter how good and great and excellent we have been, it is not about that. It is about your love and your grace and your favor. And no matter how broken and poor we have been, it is not about that. It is about your grace and your favor. And we come to you tonight, Lord God, asking that you would break us out of spiritual slumps, Lord God. You would break us out of um, boredom spiritually, Lord God. You would break us out of building our faith around what we know and putting our faith in you, Jesus. That you would break us out of not trusting in you, Lord God, and only trusting in what we can understand and what we can hold on to, Lord God. Help us to lift our eyes from the storm and look to you and say, you know what, Jesus, I'll walk on the water. I will follow you instead of asking you to keep following me because you are the king. You have called me into a relationship that says your burden is light. And so, Jesus, the heaviness of self-righteousness we lay at the cross tonight. If there's anybody here that has not made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, that has not given their lives to him, or that hasn't been living in a way that follows Jesus Christ, I want to give you an opportunity to choose to receive him as Lord and Savior, even if you're doing it again for another time. And so if that is you, would you mind raising your hand where you ask that I can pray with you? Is there anybody here who would like to do that? Thank you, Lord. If you are here and you would like to receive a new wave of grace and favor, I believe that it is something Jesus is releasing tonight, a new grace to walk with him, to not just read about him, to not just know about him, but to get back to the place of real relationship. And if that is you, would you raise your hands so that you can receive that grace from him? Thank you, Lord. Father, I pray right now for you to pour out a grace that we cannot contain and that we cannot fathom, Lord God. A grace that enables us to break down every fear that is keeping us in the boat and instead of on the water, Lord God. I pray that there would be a grace released over us tonight to not fear vulnerability, but to have high vulnerability because we know the high commitment that you have in being with us, Lord God. I pray that there would be a grace tonight to say, Lord, it is your kindness that will lead me to repentance and I repent of doing things my own way, of building idols around what I understand and what I know. And that there be a grace release tonight to break down our self-sufficiency and to look to you as the author and the finisher of our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's give Jesse a hand.